Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by author and longtime technology journalist, Charles Arthur, who is the author of the thought-provoking book, Social Warming, How Social Media Polarizes Us All. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book and its key arguments, as well as his recommendations to address the excesses of the social media age. Charles, thanks for joining us on Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Let me start with the book's evocative title. What social media is an analogy to global warming? What are the similarities that you see? So I started thinking about this in the context of the 2016 US election, where the Trump campaign made a very effective use of Facebook targeting particular states, and where the vote was tipped by tiny fractions, sort of something like 0.1 of a percent. And it seemed to me that that you're talking about a very small change having a big effect. And that is rather like we see with global warming, where small changes in temperature can cause big changes in all sorts of other uh, behavior, all sorts of other effects. It's rather like you know when when ice turns to water, it's only a small change in temperature, but uh, the actual phase change is, is very dramatic. And I started to wonder about the effect to which social media could have similar effects, whether you were seeing something where people who use social media a lot um, would change their behavior, whether they would become uh, more annoyed with each other, perhaps, whether they would become more uh, angry, more radicalized. At the time, I was doing some work at Cambridge University looking at the effects of being online. And uh, I did some polling, which found that people who spent more time online, who spent the most time online, were the ones who held the most radical political positions. And this seemed to me an interesting sort of fact. And when you then alight with the way that social media drives those sorts of people, puts those sort of people in front of you, then it seemed to me that you have an effect which is very broad, where everyone is in effect contributing to it, as with global warming, where you know you drive your car around, you think, well, it's not having much of an effect, is it? I'm only driving to the supermarket. But all these little incremental effects have an additive effect. And in the same way that the use of social media is one of these things where every little bit of aggravation that you feel or perhaps that you cause by some random tweet or Facebook comment that you throw out, all these things just add up and increase the social temperature in this way. A major 
argument in the book is that the social media business model has preference growth and scale and not concerned itself with externalities. What are its externalities? What, in your view, Charles, have been the costs that have accompanied social media's exponential growth? Well, I mean, you can pick so many things, but the externalities, as I see it, are people being more and more annoyed with things. People people really um, taking issue, taking umbrage with things that other people say, which actually is just something that's going to happen. You get a lot of people online, then you're going to be exposed to different views and some of those views you're not going to like. That's obviously different from one where you're living in a, a city where you don't know most of the people in the street, or even if you're living in a town, you do know lots of people, but you just don't sort of mix with the people who you disagree with. For social media, there's actually a business model which is predicated around keep people engaged. And the thing that engages us, uh, there's, a, there's a scientific paper which I, I quote in the book, which finds that the thing we pay, pay the most attention to is stuff that outrages us. It's things that that uh, fire up our tribalism and make us uh, feel that what we're seeing is something which should be rejected, that makes us feel str- more strongly part of a tribe, whatever that tribe might be. It might be you know, a political tribe, or it might be a sort of behavior tribe where you say, well, this is this is terrible behavior, whatever this person is doing. Or it might be uh, a sports tribe. You know, you like your sports team, you don't like the other sports team. All these sorts of things. The, the business model for the um, social media companies is to keep you interested, is to show you these things, to keep you engaged by, by showing you things that will outrage you. But the algorithms behind them don't know that this is what they're doing. They're just saying, well, I show this to people and they uh, spend more time on the website. What they don't realize is that the time you're spending on the website is the time where you're saying, what this person has said, what this person has done is is ridiculous and stupid, and I'm going to you know, write a tweet, I'm going to write a Facebook comment, I'm going to you know, do whatever, um, telling everyone how this person is stupid and wrong. And all that sort of uh, effect, like I say, it sort of raises the social temperature. You see it with politicians who take more and more extreme views in order to get a reaction, in order to strengthen the people who are their tribe. But at the same time, this means that your politics becomes more extreme. Your politicians become more extreme. They start to move to the edges, to the fringes of the positions they might have held. And if you look, for example, at how many Twitter followers or how many Facebook followers particular politicians have, you start to notice that the ones who hold the most extreme views are the ones who have the larger numbers, the ones who are the sort of the centrists, the ones who are the compromisers, have fewer followers because they don't say things that outrage people. They, they're trying to mollify people. And that doesn't actually fit into the schema for the social media companies. So all, all these things lead to us behaving in ways that that's more extreme, I think, than would happen if we didn't have those sorts of effects. It, it's a bit difficult to separate out and, and sort of ask the question of, well, what if we'd never had social media? What if Facebook hadn't existed? Uh, what if Twitter hadn't existed? What would our social experience look like for the internet? But there are actually examples in the book. I, I look at the example of Myanmar, also known as Burma, where you had a country which didn't have any internet at all, uh, really until 2010, when suddenly you got smartphones. And what happened there was you had a latent extremism, you had latent antagonism between ethnic groups. 
But once you had smartphones, once you had Facebook, then that really spiraled. It really took off and very quickly turned into a situation where you had uh, what the United Nations classed as uh, you know, genocidal attempts on the Rohingya Muslim population. You, you anticipated my next question, Charles. The book attributes to social media what you describe as a, quote, vicious cycle of anger and outrage that is now spilling from the online world to the offline world. And I, I was hoping that you could unpack that idea. And in particular, the question is, is social media causing anger and outrage? Or is it amplifying pre-existing anger and outrage? Or is it bringing together angry and outraged people? Or is it all of the above? And if so, how does it do it? So anger and outrage are, are very much part of the human condition. There was a time when they were actually survival mechanisms. There was a time when the human population was really very small and tribes were very important to survival. If you weren't a member of a tribe, then it was likely you wouldn't be able to gather enough food to you know, keep yourself going for, for that long. Um, you know, you're talking around all the time of the most recent ice age and so on. So at that time, being tribal was important. Being a member of the tribe, behaving as a member of the tribe was important. And outrage is a very important mechanism for pointing out when someone is not behaving as part of the tribe. And if someone is doing that, then you, you point to them and say, look, this person is doing wrong. We're going to kick them out of the tribe. So to be the, the object of the outrage uh, was quite threatening. It was quite a, a dangerous situation, you know, back in these sorts of uh, uh, you know, prehistoric times, really. But that period has passed, but we still have that sort of imprint of the tribalism, of the, necess the necessity for outrage. It's sort of burnt into our circuits. So what you then get with social media is that this long-standing instinct that we have gets amplified because it's something that attracts our attention. And so social media finds it convenient. Again, the algorithms that, that do this don't know that they're, they're picking outrage, that they're picking for these things. They just see it as something which functions uh, to keep people on the website. Yeah, there, there's no intentionality in that sense. It's an accident. If websites were to be designed around something different, um, they work in a different way. I mean, you could you could look at something like, for example, the the question website Quora, which is not about keeping you on the website by showing you outrageous things. It's about answering questions that people have, and you don't see any of these sorts of behaviours there. So the way the social media works, where it's showing people opinions, where it's showing people what's going on, has this effect of selecting for the outrage. And so it brings together people, yes, who are feeling outraged about something. And you know, there's this classic saying about Twitter, which is the thing you don't want to be on Twitter is the main character. You don't want to be the person who everyone's hating on today. And that's very much a function of the way that outrage works, is that you, know, you get to be the, the person who is um, you know, put in the stocks and has fruit thrown at them all day. It's a pretty unpleasant experience, I think, for, for anyone who experiences it. And, and yes, yeah, social media is, uh, is sort of amplifying that. It's sort of selecting for that. But it's very much something that's part of us as humans. That leads me to my next question. What is a scissor statement? Who uses them? And why is social media particularly prone to their use? 
Yeah, scissor statement is a is a fantastic phrase. It's not my not my own, I'm afraid, which which I'm sad about. But um, it was uh, a guy who uses the pseudonym of uh, Scott Alexander, who runs a blog called Slate Star Codex. Uh, he's a psychologist, and he he wrote a sort of short story, which where he sort of imagined a, a computer system that came up with what he called scissor statements. A scissor statement is one where any group of people who read it are immediately split into two camps. You, you can either agree with it or disagree with it, but you can't be sort of neutral about it. And the effect of that is, of course, that it means that the two camps are completely at odds with yourself. They, they can't agree on it. So scissor statements work on social media to split the groups who read it and immediately create this tribalism, uh, create the sort of outrage, create the, uh, the, the sort of clash. Uh, and raise the social temperature. I mean, a really classic scissor statement, I think, is uh, one such as trans women are women, which is absolutely, it's one way you, you can either agree with it or you disagree with it. You, you, there's no sort of midpoint. You, you can't sort of uh, prevaricate around it. Another one that I was interested to see sort of grow up uh, just over the past year or so is just the phrase, and it's not even a, it's not even a sentence um, of critical race theory. People hear that phrase, and they immediately think they're against it or they're for it. They don't even know what it is, but they have these strong feelings about it. And yeah, you know, that's very much. It's mostly sort of uh, restricted to the the US, although it's sort of come to the UK a little bit. Though most people don't know what it is at all. So so yeah, scissor statements are are this fascinating evolution of the way that language works and the way that language works, especially on social media, where you see them propagate around the network and people will find that they drive them to a position where they have to agree with them or they have to disagree with them. And for social networks, for social you know, systems like this, um, they become meat and drink because there'll become a focus around which people will argue endlessly because there's no resolution. You can't sort of say, well, I think they're, they're sort of a bit women, are they? Or they're a bit sort of not. And, you know, there's, there's absolutely no compromise. Scissor statements in that sense are, are absolutely the sort of rocket fuel for, for social networks. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let me ask one final question concerning your diagnosis of the problem before we get into your thoughtful analysis about what to, to, to do about it. You know, you talked earlier about the comparison to climate change or global warming and the idea of so-called neighborhood effects, whereby even if people themselves aren't individually involved in a particular activity, the, the consequences manifest themselves collectively, it's actually a relatively small share of the population that's really active on social media. There's you know, some analysis about the percentage of the American population on Twitter, for instance, and even of those, the minuscule share 
that is actively engaged in, in political or cultural debates. And yet it seems to have had this multiplier effect beyond that small share of the population. So maybe just have you elaborate a bit on what are the causes of this neighborhood effect of social media manifesting itself in the broader culture, even amongst those who may not be themselves active on social media? Yeah, I mean, a, a pretty good example of a of an effect of social media, which which reaches out beyond the people who use it, I guess would be um, in the UK, the Brexit vote, where a lot of people were reached through Facebook to vote for it. And it had the biggest vote, I think, ever. And yet, I think it was only something like 72% of the potential electorate actually did vote. So you have a large number of people who didn't vote. And yet, because of the mobilization on uh, on social media, they are affected by, by the outcome. As your politicians become more extremist, again, your, your political you know, future is determined by that. It's because these media are seen by, um, to use a common phrase, but they're seen by the elites, um, especially the people who have power, as a way to, A, to reach people directly without the intervention of the media, and B, as a way to influence what is going on. So, for example, in the book, I, I look at Ethiopia, which is a country, again, that has incredibly low uh, internet connectivity. I mean, really, really low. You're talking about sort of only just above North Korean sort of levels. But where the people in charge um, were very focused on whether people had access to the internet, as in they would cut it off if they thought that there was political mobilization going on there, where people from the diaspora abroad would use Facebook to um, promote themselves as potential political rivals to the existing uh, you know, rulers, and where it became very important to try to influence events through social media. Because th there is, as you say, there's this multiplier effect, which is if you can get all the people on who've, uh, the, the small number of people in these countries who are using social media to follow along, then you start to have this cascade down where all the people who they're in touch with in the real world directly will listen to what they say. So it becomes a, a lever that you can use. You're, you're standing in just the right place to move the world if you've got control of what's going on through social media. So yes, they're, they're now seen as the right way to influence what happens and controlling the message on social media, even just you know, literally cutting off the internet if you don't like that message, has become a really essential move for a lot of countries. I mean, sometimes it's done for, you know, that, that cutting off is actually done for good reasons. So, for example, in Kenya very recently, Facebook was, uh, I believe, was, was actually cut off or certainly prevented from running political adverts because it was shown that it simply wasn't taking enough care about what it did uh, to vet those adverts. And Kenya has had a lot of political violence uh, relating to presidential elections. And essentially, the Electoral Commission there decided that they'd had enough of what was going on, of the way that the election uh, decision-making, uh, the, the way that people were making their decisions, was being influenced by unaccountable and yet very influential social media adverts. 
this conversation ultimately leads to the question, what should we do about these negative externalities? And I, I want to spend a bit of time talking about the, the different options. Let's start with content moderation. The book raises serious concerns about the self-regulation model, which relies on social media companies to regulate their own content because it's in conflict with their profit motives. Um, what's the alternative, Charles? Uh, what do you think policymakers should be doing when it comes to policing false or harmful content? And are there any models that Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, and others should be pursuing? Yeah, it's it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, there's there's a sort of an, an assumption that social networks and the internet are, are sort of sui generis, that they're a thing unto themselves, that they're they they shouldn't be compared in any way with things that have gone before, and yet I'm not sure why that's why that assumption is made. I mean, the fact that you can scale these things up really fast—that all they have to do is add another computer and you can serve a million more users—is is, okay. That's good, but but actually, you do have to start thinking about the external effects that you have, the externalities. And when you had, you know, newspapers and radio stations and TV stations as your primary media outputs, they had responsibility for what they carried as adverts and as political adverts. And it seems strange that because you're a social network on the internet, that you can simply ignore that. That even though you're running something where the content is chosen, even though people are adding it, but you know, especially for adverts, that's something from which you're making money. Why is it that you don't have responsibility and very close responsibility for what is for what is produced there, and more so for polit- political advertising because that has an effect on democracy? I, I find the whole hands-off approach that um, Facebook has taken over political advertising and especially fact-checking to it um, to be really strange. It's interesting that Twitter has refused to take political advertising for some time now. I think that I think that, um, that there was an awareness there of the potential downsides, especially after it was seen how, how it happened for Facebook. And uh, I think that that's a, that's a good decision. The trouble is, as you say, it's expensive to do moderation, but that's not a reason not to do it. It, it is important to do. And the problem is that as these networks get bigger, as they get arithmetically bigger, as they go from 100 to 200 you know, users, say, um, the number of potential interactions goes from 1,000 to 4,000 or, or 4 million. It, 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 it goes up geometrically. So the difficulty increases much more quickly than the user base does. So your content moderation problem becomes much, much bigger, much faster. And to that extent, it seems to me that there's there's almost like sort of limits to how big these networks can or should get, which, which you know, is the point at which they can't moderate themselves at all. I'll come to the question of of antitrust and 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 whether these companies have become too big. But if we can just stay on the subject of of content moderation, what would you say to those uh, Charles who'd argue that efforts to target misinformation risks capturing arguments or ideas that may challenge mainstream thinking, but that that doesn't make them necessarily false or harmful? I think, for instance, of changing views on the, the lab leak theory with respect to the origins of the coronavirus, or even evolving perspectives on issues of race, gender, or sexuality, which in the past would have been seen as transgressive or harmful. Is there a risk that content moderation overreaches and tilts in favor of greater intellectual conformity 
and even undermines progress? And how should we think about that trade-off? There's always that sort of risk of, of, uh, of overreach. And the way that you deal with that, I think, is to consider what it is that you're trying to prevent. What you're really trying to prevent is, is hate speech. You're trying to prevent people from being, from, from denigrating others in a way that essentially dehumanizes them. That's, that's the, the line that you don't want to cross. Another line you don't want to cross is one where you find people encouraging harassment of other people. The marketplace of ideas, if you like, you know, the whole lab leak versus natural origin thing for coronavirus, that's one, I think, where once the argument is is running along those lines, it's fine. But, it, but when you get to the fringes of that argument, which is uh, where people are essentially you know, dehumanizing the Chinese scientists who worked in the Wuhan lab, then you can see where, where the, the sort of limits of the conversation have to lie. So it's about careful content moderation. It's about knowing what your goals are. Your goals are that you, you don't want to stop discussion. What you want to stop is raising the social temperature by needlessly dehumanizing people, uh, needlessly denigrating people, uh, needlessly leading to people being harassed. And I, I, I think those are, are fairly easy uh, lines to draw. And when it comes to things like misinformation, again, that's that's uh, certainly a, a difficult space in terms of what you know, whether people are intentionally doing it or not. And I think in that situation, it's, it's one where um, the social networks have the better view. They can see the helicopter view of how wide-ranging is this attempt to push this line? Is it something which is being pushed by a lot of bots, by a lot of automated accounts, or is it something which is actually uh, just coming from people who naturally share this view? I mean, in the UK, for example, there was there were a lot of people who were against the uh, quite strict lockdowns that we had during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, and you could argue that um, that was a that was a bad thing for them to be going against it, but but at the same time, you know, there was honestly held views, and it was fine just to to have the discussion about it. The problem comes when you get people saying that one side or the other is fascistic or 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 is evil or whatever, and, and when you're trying to, uh, as I say, to dehumanize, that's because that's the that's the step that you don't want to be taking. We've talked a, a bit in this conversation about the role of algorithms. Elon Musk, as you know, has made the case for greater transparency when it comes to algorithms. Do you agree? And if so, do you think there's a role for government policy here? Algorithms are the really difficult one because so much of what is going on now within social networks is all driven by machine learning systems. And with those, you can't really open the box and look at it and watch how the mouse gets from one end of the maze to the other. Uh, it's it's as almost as unknowable as asking someone how they reach a decision. You know, it, it's the way that it's literally the way that people think. They don't quite know how they do it. They just know that that's how they've always thought, and uh, and this is their the way that they've reached this decision. I think that it's a slightly overambitious idea to think that people could look at the algorithms and understand them. 
to take what's going on right at the moment, there's lots of illustration systems, AI illustration systems. So there's one called Stable Diffusion from a company called Stability AI, which is a downloadable package of about four gigabytes. Uh, and it's been trained on millions and millions of pictures from the web. And you can just about reverse engineer it. You can just about see how it is that it learns to draw a picture when you ask it to draw one. But you can't quite see it. You can't quite understand why it is that one uh, prompt will tell you, will, will make one picture and another prompt will make a slightly different one, but not that different. And when you're talking about the, the algorithms that run social networks, you're talking about something far more complicated. So... I, I just think that's that's an impossibility. You can tune these things. You can look for the outcomes. And I think that it makes more sense to actually try to, if you're really going to do this, to try to legislate around the outcomes. But even that is difficult. I mean, you know, how do you measure engagement? You have to ask the companies, what is it that you're actually trying to achieve here? And and really, that's what you, you need to focus on, uh, rather than thinking you're going to have an army of geeks who will puzzle over the algorithm if it's been open sourced by the government. I, I just think that's that's totally un, unreal. And it's just not going to happen for one thing. And it wouldn't produce an, out, uh, you know, an output that you could use anyway. Let's come to the option of breaking these large uh, social media companies up. How might that help to improve the situation? Would a more fragmented market reduce or minimize some of the negative externalities that we've been talking about? Well, as I said earlier, I mean, it's just natural that as these companies grow, as their user base grows arithmetically, the potential for trouble grows geometrically because you're now bringing people together from all over the world, people who have, you know, distasteful views, views where they're looking to get together and harass people. And if you're getting people from Tonga together with people from Canada, together with people from Estonia who all want to hassle someone who lives in Brazil, then they can. And the bigger your network is, the more easily uh, it can do that. So it seems to me that what you need to think about is actually limits on the size of these companies, literally limits on the number of users that they can have, because uh, when a network like that is small, it it makes it easier to moderate, much easier to moderate, um, you know, and the effects will tend to be less. You can usually say that if a network is well moderated and is not too large, then its effects will be minimal. You can have small networks that are not moderated whose effects will be very harmful. Um, as uh, was, you know, was seen earlier um, in August with the website Kiwi Farms, which has been hassling people for years and but now seems to have been shut down. There is an argument, I think, in, in favour of just saying there are sizes beyond which you don't allow the social networks to go. And sort of arbitrarily, I think it's about the sort of size perhaps of Twitter, which is around 250 million users. For Facebook, that would mean it could cover the US and Canada, but it would have to set up shop with a whole new network um, in Europe and a whole new network in the, the Pacific or something. Um, but it seems to me that the benefit of that is you, you don't get the harmful externalities of people gathering together and being unmoderatable because it's just impossible to do. You sort of anticipated my final question, but I'll, I'll put it to you still. If for no other reason, it'll give you an opportunity to 
you know, provide any closing thoughts or, or, or ideas that you want to impart with our listeners. But do you think social media has been a net negative for our societies? Would we, in your view, Charles, have been better off if they had never been created? Well, speaking as a journalist, I've got to say that Twitter has been uh, you know, absolutely fantastic because it's allowed me to find sources who I might not otherwise have been able to find. <laughs> I'd probably speak for all the journalists in the world in saying that. Um, so in that sense, it's sort of been a net positive for me. But you can point to lots of things where it's had really bad effects. I mean, not necessarily just Twitter, but you know, Facebook in Myanmar, as I said, uh, Facebook in Ethiopia, you know, Facebook in Kenya, even these are countries where things have not been great. I mean, you know, even Facebook in the United States, where groups got together with the "Stop the Steal" idea after the November 2020 election, and that led to the. January 6th insurrection, even if parts of that were organized off Facebook in other groups, the fact that you had so many people who were able to become, in effect, radicalized by this idea is not a great thing for democracy, I don't think. And um, I, f I feel that legislators are just about getting hold of this, that they're starting to really realize they need to get some sort of grip on what is going on, and that the networks themselves are doing the same, that they're starting to realize that um, they've, they've got a fire which they need to put out. So uh, it's really hard to say. I, I mean, we're still in quite early days for these social networks, and uh, it's possible we've had all the good bits and we're now in the sort of the the so-so bits and that we need to take some action before we get into the bad bits. Or it might be the other way around. It might be that actually what we've seen is all the bad things before we realise how we should use them, that we're now in the sort of the, the learning phase, that we're going to move into the good phase where everyone only uses Facebook in a good way. Um, but it's always better to be safe than sorry. I think it's better to take action and to make sure than just to trust that uh, everything will be okay because it doesn't always work out right if you if you do that. So has it been a net positive? Has it been a net negative? It's um, it's one that I that I juggle between, and uh, I I think that broadly for society it's sort of been okay it's sort of helped people stay in touch with their families but there have been these little pockets like i say you know you can point to Kenya, you can point to you know uh, myanmar you can point to the insurrection and say actually that's really bad that's that's really set us back as a society as a civilization almost so i i guess you'd sort of say mostly good but not entirely good well for our listeners who are similarly juggling that question i i recommend they read Social Warming, How Social Media Polarizes Us All. Charles Arthur, thank you for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. 
Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.